Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, sometimes maybe that's where innovation lies, where we're not going to attempt to reinvent the wheel. The wheel exists. We're just trying to add, like, you know, some, like snow tires to it or something. Welcome to Collaborative Endeavors, a podcast about how scientists from different areas of research come together to tackle big health challenges, leading to better therapies and healthier communities. In this episode, we meet Dr. Laura Sanchez, an associate professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Formerly with the UIC College of Pharmacy, Dr. Sanchez spoke with me about her interdisciplinary research into ovarian cancer detection that was initially supported by a CCTS pilot grant award. She and her collaborator, Dr. Joanna Burdett, discuss how their team is bridging the translational gap between basic science and clinical practice in cancer research. The main focus of Dr. Sanchez's lab is to explain how cells and microbes communicate with each other and their surroundings to coordinate biological functions. For those who don't have a strong background in the basic sciences, like myself, Laura explains what this means on a day-to-day basis. I'm a trained natural product chemist, um, but now I would say the lab has morphed into almost like a mass spectrometry-based analytical chemistry lab, uh, where we do, we're really interested to apply our analytical tool set to spatially driven biomedical problems. So we work on a lot of different systems and model systems, but the lab applies the same kind of toolkit to these problems. The bread and butter of what my lab likes to focus on is historically like small molecules. So we all know that, you know, bacteria, microbes, and cells have the capacity to produce, um, you know, these small chemical entities. And a lot of people spend their time focusing, you know, on the DNA or the proteins, which are the products of, you know, what the DNA encodes for. Um, But we like to think about the fact that also like a lot of proteins also subsequently make small molecules. So I think these small chemicals are really, for us, um, a solid readout of a given system. Like the question we like to ask is, where is the chemical and when is it being produced? Which, you know, I would say probably you couldn't have asked that kind of a question, really, keeping the spatial system intact 10 years ago. Or it would have been very difficult more than 10 years ago. In 2017, Dr. Sanchez received CCTS pilot funding with her collaborator, Dr. Joanna Burdett, a professor and associate dean for research in the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences at UIC's College of Pharmacy. Dr. Burdett's lab is interested in biological questions that are important to women's health. Their research primarily uses mouse models and organs on a chip to understand early events in ovarian cancer. Burdett and Sanchez told me the story of how they initially teamed up on this project. Laura and I uh, worked together based on a junior faculty career development award called the BIRCH, which is a building interdisciplinary research careers in women's health. I was a co-director of the program, and Laura was a junior faculty, and um, I encouraged her to apply to get this award to support um, her research and her career development, and part of the um, focus of the program would be that she would actually use her technology, mass spectrometry, to uh, leverage against 
problems that are important for women's health. And so since she hadn't really been a women's health scholar in the past, we decided to team up that she would use her technology to work together with me in my area of, of focus, which is on ovarian cancer. She was like, did you know that ovarian cancer is actually, you know, like a spatially driven problem where, you know, it originates, like the primary mutations originate in the fallopian tube, and then that actually moves to the ovary. Joanna is, you know, hands down an expert in ovarian cancer biology. And, you know, her lab has a lot of mouse models that they've developed or work with. I had zero background in cancer, and I have been attempting to avoid it for 15 years um, just because I think, you know, as a chemist, like a trained undergraduate level, PhD level chemist, like we don't really have a ton of even biochemistry courses per se. Um, So I would say the team works because she, you know, has a wealth of knowledge in the field. You know, she's really tied into the patient advocate networks um, and, you know, what is the standard in her field. And then I feel like I have all these, you know, technical applications and I'm like, "This this is where it merges, where it's a really good actual use of the technology to probe really deep, outstanding questions. And I would say, you know, if, um, you know, without the expertise, I think a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of really exciting developments in mass spectrometry, but I think sometimes if you just stick to model systems, it gets really hard to see where the creative applications can be. So you really need, you know, a solid biological collaborator to help kind of push the technology forward. Because without the biological applications, the technology is kind of useless. So I think that's where, you know, my lab really, we thrive on working and having these interdisciplinary uh, collaborations because without it, you know, you could really easily, very quickly go down an uninteresting rabbit hole where you're like, oh, we found this protein, but if there's no application for it, you know, then it's just um, an academic exercise. Collaboration is one of the best ways to do science. I think especially if you have a team where one person is really focused on a specific biological problem area. For example, my lab is really focused around ovarian cancer. But we have partnered with somebody who's very focused around technology development. And so that's Dr. Sanchez bringing to bear MALDI-TOF, mass spectrometry, and imaging mass spectrometry. When you marry those two interest, technological development with biologically relevant hypothesis testing, it can really produce a, a unique data and cause and, and have us form a new t- tool to kind of deal with um, big problems that face our communities like det- early detection. I mean, if the two of us weren't working together on this, I honestly, I've been scared to work in the area of, ovarian, of detection because it's it's so hard, and so many things have been tried, and they've all failed. If it wasn't for the ability to use a really new type of technology in this area, I probably would have shied away from it. And also, if I didn't really value collaboration and didn't think that Dr. Sanchez was just one of the best scientists I've ever met, it probably wouldn't have been as easy and as fun and as successful to do the project. You know, we have a strong knowledge in our own subdisciplines, and we actually communicate and work together. So I think that's what, that's what makes us different than a lot of other people that have attempted to solve the problem in the past. In high-grade serous ovarian cancer, the five-year survival rate is less than 10%. In a given year, 
There are an estimated 21,000 new cases and 14,000 ovarian cancer-related deaths. Contributing to these numbers is the fact that most patients are already at stage 3 or 4 at the time of diagnosis due to a lack of diagnostic testing. Dr. Sanchez and Burdett saw an opportunity to combine their knowledge and devise a minimally invasive technology to help identify high-risk ovarian cancer. Initially, we developed uh, a couple of projects together, really looking at the idea that uh, high-grade serous cancer, the most common and deadly type of ovarian cancer, really comes from the fallopian tube and not the ovary. And when you think about that, it then changes the way that you would design experiments around early um, detection and also understanding early events in cancer because you need to focus on the fallopian tube and not the ovary. And so... You know, knowing now or realizing, thinking that anatomically then the fallopian tube is part of an open tube that exits the body and that early detection for ovarian cancer still remains uh, unachievable, meaning there are no sensitive and selective tests that are good enough to detect ovarian cancer in the general population. We hypothesized that one reason could be that the source of the material used for detection is too dilute. It's far away from the actual early lesion. And so if we got something more proximal or localized, that it might increase the chance of the concentration of that being high enough to actually detect it. One of our focuses is to understand that prevention and detection technologies are not readily implemented based on physicians, patients, and insurance reimbursement unless they fit into some type of routine care. Now, women go in and have a pap smear done on a pretty regular basis, or they're at least supposed to. When you say pap smear, though, what people hear is, I'm going into the vagina and I'm taking a small clip of cells from the cervix to look for cervical cancer. And that's fine. But what we think is you could pretty much take the same sample but use it in mass spectrometry as an early detection for ovarian cancer. And so when we were kind of kicking this around, one of the main instruments in my lab that we use to do this technique we call imaging mass spectrometry is called a MALDI-TOF mass spectrometer. And that's a matrix-assisted laser desorption ionization time of flight. Uh, mass spectrometer, and these things are actually clinically available. So you'll find them in a lot of clinical labs, uh, and that's what people use to, you know, after you take a culture and you actually grow a microbe on a plate, this is actually what clinical labs will do now to identify the causative microbe. This type of instrument is clinically available, and there are FDA-approved methods for it. Because if the technology was already clinically available, we thought that that would lead to quicker translation. So we thought if we could figure out how to get it to work with a human sample for something like ovarian cancer, then that would actually be something that would positively impact, you know, um, patient outcomes. We weren't the first to come up with that idea. There's been investigators at Johns Hopkins and um, UAB and the Mayo Clinic that have been using this idea of vaginal sampling for endometrial cancer, and they've also done some studies on high-grade serous or ovarian cancer as well. But the difference there is that those investigators are trying to capture cancer cells and use DNA sequencing to look at mutations that are identified in cancer and early lesions. 
we're doing something else. We're trying to use mass spectrometry to look at ionizable chemistry. And the two methods are probably complementary. Dr. Burdett further explains what the team refers to as fingerprint technology. If successful, and with enough data, the hope is that the existing Molotov technology could be programmed to identify these fingerprints as part of routine lab work. Would you possibly do better trying to develop a fingerprint technology? And, a, and I, I'd use that analogy because what the mass spectrometer is actually doing is it's detecting ionizable chemistry, and that could be small molecules, that could be small proteins, um, lipids, um, et cetera. So there's an advantage to maybe knowing specifically what you're talking about. I'm talking about enzyme A, isoform type, whatever. But there could also be an advantage to not necessarily focusing on that, but focusing on the spectrum. The, the array of fingerprints are different signals you get that would make a fingerprint because We've started to learn, I think, that by the more type of information we can integrate to predict something, the kind of more powerful that is. So the strategy in the past of trying to find one biomarker that was predictive for all cancers that was good enough for early detection has kind of failed in a lot of cancer types. The project is innovative in that we know what exists in the clinic and we're trying to make it, you know, something that might actually work. So we don't necessarily need to make a new you know, a brush or create a new instrument. We just want to repurpose samples that are already being taken. So I think it's just thinking about, like, the actual practicality. You know, I think sometimes as scientists, people want to do it the hard way, and I'm just like, this might be the easiest thing to do, and it appears that no one's even really tried it. Um, so I think, and the, again, that kind of arises from just kicking things back and forth, Um where it's like, here's what I know, here's what you know. Like, actually, if we just merge these things, maybe this is potentially a solution to the problem. And Joanna works with the survivors a lot, and this is really, you know, what they're asking for and driving forward is, you know, can we have screening tools rather than just letting it get to the point, you know, where it's already stage three and four. While there are still many obstacles to overcome in this project, including scaling the study to include larger numbers of human samples, the potential benefits to patients could be substantial. Dr. Burdett explained what this intervention could look like as part of a routine women's health exam. So for a cancer that essentially has no early detection, what's the follow-up detection, right? <laughs> so, um, and there are things, though. The question is, how effective are they? So in an ideal world, if a woman came in for a routine gynecologic exam and had a sample taken from the vaginal environment, let's say a pap smear, literally a clump of the cells from the cervix, but also the surrounding fluid, which is essentially what we would probably uh most likely use and what we have experimentally used in the lab to build up to this um, in that sample for the Maldi toss for the fingerprint. Okay. Then they come back and they say, mm, this looks suspicious. We think that you might have um, a fingerprint that looks like early ovarian cancer. We know that when you detect ovarian cancer early, which only happens, you know, about 5% of the time, you go in and women can live without their reproductive organs, right? So you take them out. It's basically a, a cure. Most people survive um, 15 years, which is in cancer world is kind of a cure, right? 
so that's, you know, that's why this is early detection of this particular type of cancer is like so provocative and so profound on what it could do in terms of survival. Another thing that might happen from a, a detection would be a genetic counseling uh, because, you know, BRCA, although that only contributes to about 10 to 20 percent of cancers, uh, it would be important thing for a physician and a, and a patient to know about themselves if they had a suspected uh, diagnosis. But if you could take it one step further, you know, this is where a lot of people are going now. Let's say you only have to remove the fallopian tube and not the ovary. Now you've also taken advantage of the fact that you aren't making a woman surgically menopausal and you aren't necessarily even completely eliminating their risk of uh, being sterile. They could still have in vitro fertilization. They would still have a uterus. They would still have ovaries, right? If you just do a fembriectomy or a salpingectomy, you know, you've really had a minimal effect on uh, their bodily functions. And so the, that gets back to cell of origin and, you know, really proving that the fallopian tube is the starting point of all of this. It just, it, it's the power of the basic science driving the translational and clinical application. Beyond her work with Dr. Burdett, Dr. Sanchez and her lab collaborate on several other interdisciplinary projects. She concludes with some advice on picking the right research partners and why these choices can be so important to those pursuing a career in translational science. So I would say, you know, the best collaborations have arisen from like a mutual interest um, where both parties are excited about the projects um, and then are actually then responsive and attempt to, you know, find the pilot funding necessary. Um, and I would definitely say there are other times where in the course of a project, you know, when we kind of realize both investigators might have a, a knowledge gap, then I would say that's where we try to figure out who's the next best person to bring into the team. I think a lot of times it's just like, okay, where did this project, where are we kind of butting up against the limits of knowledge and like who do we know, you know, that might be interested in coming in? You want to and choose your collaborators very carefully because I think, you know, what I always try to avoid with mass spectrometry is like we're not a core service. So really like to make sure that when we, you know, sign on, like that we're all excited about it. It's not just like, yes, we can technically take this measurement for you, but like I don't find it to be, you know, excited. Like just because you want another shiny piece of data for your paper doesn't mean it's going to necessarily make a great collaboration. So I think it's uh, really important to kind of pick and choose like, you know, does this actually, you know, help get you out of bed in the morning? Because every project, you know, if everything worked on the first go, we'd all have PhDs in like two years and be done with everything. Or like all of the world's problems would have been solved by now. But it's, you know, I feel like science is a, you know, a, a fickle mistress. So you have to, you know, persevere, which requires that initial excitement. Collaborative Endeavors is produced by me, Lauren Rieger, on behalf of the Center for Clinical and Translational Science, aka the CCTS, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, visit the links in our show notes. The CCTS is supported by the National Institutes of Health's National Center for Advancing Translational Science through their Clinical and Translational Science Award. The views expressed in this podcast are our own. 
To learn more about how you can get involved in health research, visit ccts.uic.edu or follow us on Twitter at UIC underscore CCTS.